Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. You are listening to the Mother of All Talk Shows podcast with George Galloway. Quite seriously, it's not that long ago that you did have to be a criminal to get into Australia. It was, of course, a penal colony of uh, the British mothership uh, when it was uh, the Botany Bay experiment, where the dregs of London, plus political prisoners from Ireland and from other places in the empire, Uh, people were sent on prison ships to the bay, Botany Bay. Well, times have changed, but maybe it's just that the criminals are in charge of the system. The more I read about Australia, and anybody that watches The Tourist will probably not want to go there, although, spoiler alert, I've only actually seen the first three episodes. Maybe it gets nicer, but... Out there in the outback, down under, with these gangsters in charge of Australia, they seem determined to institute the most tyrannical authoritarian tyranny on the earth so far as COVID is concerned. They've actually got prison camps for people who will not get vaccinated. Now, I'm triple vaccinated. In fact, my arm's still sore from the third of the triptych. Uh, So I'm not remotely against vaccination. I believe in vaccination. I'm probably not going to get a fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh and eighth because I'm concerned about my natural immunity being degraded as a result. But I am fully vaccinated. And Australia is entitled to have whatever laws Uh, They decide they're answerable to their own people uh, in the forthcoming Australian election. But the Djokovic story makes them look like fools, fools and tyrants at one and the same time. They gave him a visa. He won the Australian Open. He is the world's number one tennis player. And when he got there, they sought to huckle him like he'd just arrived on a prison ship in Botany Bay. We'll be talking to a tennis ace in the first hour of the show about where all this leaves Australia. I'm not sure if I were the Lawn Tennis Association, if they are the people in charge, I don't know. What do I know about tennis? I'm not sure that Australia would be the place for me if I was choosing a country to go to for Uh, a big tennis tournament or any other kind of tournament. That's me banned then from Australia. No more speaking tours down under for me because they're a vindictive kind of chap, the government of Australia. Uh, Boris Johnson undoubtedly had a very, very bad week. 
but unpopular view, I think he's about to bounce back. I think that the revelations uh, about the block of wood, Keir Starmer, uh, involved in much the same things as Boris Johnson and more particularly Boris Johnson's staff were involved in, probably has tipped the balance, which I think was swinging anyway towards uh, uh, ennui, boredom, bored stiff with the revelations about one party after another. Now, I don't drink alcohol and I don't go to parties. Uh, but if I did, it wouldn't be with the kind of geeks and uh, oddballs that seem to be the staple of the staff in 10 Downing Street. Many of them recruited by a man who openly advertised for such. You had to be a geek. You had to be an oddball to work for Dominic Cummings. Now, people say to me, well, of course, Boris Johnson got rid of Dominic Cummings. You wouldn't have employed him, they say to me. And the answer to that is, no, I would not have employed him. But if I had employed him, I would not have sacked him in the unceremonious way that Boris Johnson did because he didn't get on with my then girlfriend. That's the last thing I would have done. I would have made him an ambassador somewhere. Nice. Australia, maybe. I would have sent him somewhere with a soft feather pillow. I would have cushioned his dismissal in such a way that he would not actually, like some kind of hold-up psychopath in a garret somewhere, be sitting night and day actively working for my destruction, because that's what's happening. There is no doubt at all that Dominic Cummings, whom we invited on the show, if he's watching now, he can pick up the phone, he'll be most welcome. Dominic Cummings is involved in a coup attempt to overthrow the Prime Minister of Britain. Now, before any fool says so, I'm not defending the Prime Minister of Britain. Somebody said to me the other day that I was trying to get him sacked over parties. I don't give a toss about the parties. I give a toss about the hypocrisy of people who on the same night are ordering other people in Britain not to associate with each other and one hour later breaking out the volivons breaking out the sausage rolls, popping the champagne corks. That's hypocrisy. I'm concerned about that. But I'm not trying to get rid of Boris Johnson because of parties. I don't want Boris Johnson's resignation. I want Boris Johnson on trial. I want Boris Johnson and Matt Hancock and all the others responsible for the mishandling of the coronavirus epidemic from day one until today, I want them on trial. I want them on trial because I believe there have been crimes committed against the British people by its government over the coronavirus. And I don't mean having parties when you're not supposed to. I mean the tens of billions of pounds that have been unlawfully, I'm certain of it, unlawfully funneled into the mouths and pockets 
of Tory cronies, personal friends, bar tenders in the local pub, family members. That's what I'm concerned about in relation to the coronavirus. I'm concerned about the old people that were shuffled into care homes when they were infected by coronavirus, by the governments in London and in Edinburgh, and for all I know, also in Cardiff, but I concede I know little of what goes on in the politics of Wales. I want these people on trial. I'm not defending them. I'm just saying that I think Boris Johnson is about to bounce back, and he's going to bounce back on two bases. The first one is the aforementioned license fee. Do you welcome the government scrapping the BBC license fee? A, yes, B, no. That's my first poll of the evening. I'm very clear and have been all along with you. I believe that a state broadcaster belongs as an idea, as a concept in the 20th century. It has no part in the current broadcasting architecture uh, that we have before us now, in the era of digital, in the era of subscription. I pay subscriptions to Amazon, to, uh, uh, to Netflix, to Sky, to BT, to Manchester United, to Glasgow Celtic. I pay subscriptions for the things that I want to watch. And I shouldn't be forced to pay for a BBC license fee on pain of imprisonment if I do not do so. That's an idea whose time has gone. Even Stalin didn't think of that. The idea that a person who never watches or listens to any BBC output should be forced to pay for it so that they can watch Netflix on their television is frankly absurd. It does not stand up to a moment's logical examination. And when you've got a state broadcaster, that in addition to all of that, actually makes it its very expensively remunerated business to attack and oppose and undermine the very state that is mandating it, that is making possible its multi-billion pound budget, well, that's just an absurdity. Uh, it's otios, the idea. It's absurd. Given that idea, that the BBC is allowed effectively to side with anybody but Britain. The BBC ran for years a fifth-column operation to undermine and destroy the decision of the British people to leave the European Union. They might as well have appeared on screen draped in the tricolor or whatever the color of Belgium is. They might as well have spoken like Hercule Poirot for all the British Broadcasting Corporation that they were. They were running a fifth column to undermine the decision of the British people who pay for them on pain of imprisonment and to keep Britain in the European Union. For those of us who live in Scotland, that problem is multiply compounded by 
The fact that the British Broadcasting Corporation, paid for by the British license fee pair, is daily, nightly, undermining the existence of Britain as a state and doing everything that it can to boost and bolster the separatist movement and existential threat to the existence of Britain on the coin of the British Broadcasting Authority. Well, that is just plain bonkers. And the second reason why I think Boris Johnson's about to bounce back, you say that he's a fool. He's the wisest fool in Christendom, uh, to be sure. He's a bounder, a cad, a mountbank. You wouldn't let him drive your wife home from the office. You wouldn't. You'd lock up your daughters if he came a calling. He's everything bad about the British ruling class, for sure. But he does have an instinct for survival, as the British ruling class has always had. And the BBC is the right hand, and the left hand is the new effort that he's going to announce this week uh, to stop what is he clearly, absolutely clearly, European Union conspiracy to permit the unlimited departure from their shores of illegal immigrants to our shores who are showered and shaved and then installed in a three or even four star hotel at the British taxpayer's expense for an indeterminate time, which may very well indeed is quite likely to be a period of years, during which time some of them, some of them will commit crimes, some of them bad crimes, a very few of them terrorist crimes, some more of them sex crimes. Whatever crimes a tiny minority of them commit will of course cause disharmony and strife amongst the people already in Britain, legally in the towns, in the seaside towns, in the cities in which the asylum seekers, refugees, illegal immigrants, these terms have become a movable feast, uh, are ensconced. So Boris Johnson escaping from the apparent perdition is going to go hard in the coming week on that subject. Thus bolstering with the BBC and with the dinghies his really seriously flagging conservative base support. Now I'm against the conservatives. I'm against Boris Johnson. Uh, but I'm equally against Labour and I'm equally against Sir Keir Starmer. I make no distinction between the two. In fact, I'm involved in, when I'm not working here, to try and replace the miscalled Labour Party. And in that regard, there are some important new developments. It is said, it may, or it may not be true. I've, I, I, I invited Starmer, I invited him to come and join me and answer these points, but he so far hasn't turned up. So on the principle that 
I don't have another chair to empty chair them. Someone's just kindly given me a block of wood. It's said that Jeremy Corbyn is on the point of accepting that he will never again be a Labour member of Parliament. Amazing, isn't it? Only two years ago he was the leader of the Labour Party and the putative Prime Minister with Keir Starmer as a member, a key member, a decisive member of his shadow cabinet. And now he's not even a Labour member of Parliament. He sits lonely as a cloud, as an independent MP in Parliament. And Labour is very shortly to pick a candidate to stand against him in his North London constituency. So it is said, not by him, certainly hasn't said it to me or anyone that I know, that uh, Jeremy Corbyn is ready to make a decisive break with Labour. Now, I have nothing to thank Jeremy Corbyn for. I don't even like him. There you go. And I like even less uh, the terrible mistakes that he made in the run-up to the general election in 2019, particularly on Brexit, but not on Brexit alone. But I am more than ready uh, to work with Mr. Corbyn and anyone else who is ready to make the break from the miscalled Labour Party led by this gentleman here, this uh, less than trusty block of wood, Keir Starmer. So watch this space. This might become a story of some importance. Do you welcome the government scrapping the BBC licence fee? Has anyone voted on this yet? Do you welcome the government scrapping the BBC licence fee? I do. In fact, I don't just welcome it. I rejoice in this news. And if I drank alcohol, I'd be popping a cork, just like they do, apparently, on an hourly basis in Downing Street, the seat of British government. Do you welcome the government scrapping the BBC licence fee? Yes, 86%. No, 14%. Wow! You can vote on my Twitter feed, you can vote on my YouTube channel, you can vote on my Telegram channel. Get voting. I want this to be the biggest poll of the night anywhere on this subject. And I certainly welcome the results so far. Uh, Derek Chadwick says by email, now that the Queen's second son has been stripped of his HRH title, if I happen to bump into him in the local laundromat washing his tweeds, <laughs> do I address him as Mr. York or as the man formerly known as Prince? Very witty, Derek. I'm not sure if he has been stripped of HRH. Has he? He has been stripped of HRH. So he's now just the Duke, the Duke of York, the grand old Duke of York. Actually, the man formerly known as the grand old Chuka York, not so grand anymore. Uh, what he does now in his uh, travails with the US justice system, uh, no doubt will become clear over the next uh, few days. Uh, so he's the artist formerly known as Prince York. Um, but I'll tell you something. Did you know he's a member of that splendid order of the Garter? 
that Tony Blair is due to be inducted into. Great company, Tony. Great company, Andrew. The two of them there in their garters around that round table, a kind of reverse Camelot. Why should the Chuka York be a knight of the garter? I suppose if Tony Blair can be one, anyone can be one. We'll go to social media shortly. There's plenty of it. Puneet Bandal is a journalist and author, and perhaps most importantly, is a tennis expert writing and commenting on tennis uh, frequently in the media. And I'm very glad to say Puneet Bandal joins me now. Puneet, welcome. Uh, to the show. I'm most grateful uh, to you. You're looking very sporty, I must say, as if you've just come off the tennis courts, which is something that uh, Novak Djokovic can't do. What's your overview on this? I think we have to call it a scandal, don't we? It's an epic scandal. It's probably the biggest um, tennis scandal I've seen since I've been watching the sport. Um, and it's really difficult to even make sense of it because so much happened. It was, I mean, I can only, if I had to use like a small phrase, I'd say a media witch hunt. It was um, trial by social media. Um, the rulings at the end were shaped not by fact, but by what journalists have written on social media. BBC news reports and online polls were presented as evidence. And because the... Um, the Australian government took their special power um, to impose this cancellation of the visa and the judges didn't overturn it because it depends on how they feel about it. It's about a feeling, the perception of what they think about Djokovic. Um, it all came down to the fact that there were stories about him that he's an anti-vaxxer. The media's always preyed on him. He's never been the poster boy of tennis. He was always very much the villain against the heroes, um, Federer and Nadal. Coming from Eastern Europe didn't help. Maybe um, rejecting a British um, uh, citizenship didn't help. And then when he started to break their records, um, and he's only got the Grand Slam record to break now, they're all tied at 20 all. Um, I think the witch hunt and... Um, the comments by reporters and this frenzy to kind of defame him has created this and it's just so complicated to just cover in, you know, like a few minutes. Well, I think you did really well in summarising <laughs> it. Uh, uh, Serbians are uh, not that popular uh, in the Western media and the Western world. I love them myself and always have. Um, that uh, was something that has handicapped him. He has uh, now the full support of the Serbian people uh, and Australia now has a new enemy to add to France and uh, quite a few different parts of the European Union to add to China, to add to Russia. Australia is going out of its way to uh, lose friends and uh, lose influence with people, don't you think? I mean, it's quite, I think the consequences of this case are what terrify me the most. I mean, apart from the devastating impact on tennis fans, I mean, I've literally been inundated with messages from people who say they can't cope with this. You know, people have invested 10, 15 years of their life following, you know, the big three to see who's going to emerge the champion. And now there's gamesmanship and politics that are involved, and that's going to 
you know, uh, change the end result. So apart from the, the fact that tennis has been stained, um, the fans are devastated, uh, what does it mean about freedom of speech? So if we go to a country and that government thinks that we may perceive or have a certain idea that goes against what they believe to be correct, they can cancel your visa. They have extraordinary power to cancel your visa. So, I mean, Djokovic has never said he's an anti-vaxxer. He's um, always said he's pro-choice. But whenever he has questioned vaccines, um, namely a Zoom call in 2020, before the vaccine was even um, you know, available, um, basically that information gets pumped out to the media, anti-vaxxer, anti-vaxxer. And a lot of casual tennis fans who don't listen to every one of his interviews, who just casually see news reports, it gets stuck in their head. So the case came down to what the public perceives Djokovic to be. And it doesn't matter that he's not an anti-vaxxer. The fact that we think he's an anti-vaxxer and he might create anti-vax excitement in our country um, is enough grounds to get rid of him, even though they've got like a 92% vaccination rate or something like that. It, just, it didn't make sense. And that's the heartbreaking thing about it because it just felt like they did what they want to do. And it's quite frightening to think that if that's going to happen to him, a multi-million you know, million tennis star with legal aid, and you know he's obviously got lawyers and access to all that, what does it mean for normal people who might go there with certain different religious or political views? Yeah, well, uh, it's going to be very difficult uh, after what I said at the beginning of the show. For me to get a visa to go to Australia, it has an increasingly authoritarian government and a malfunctioning government. A government mired not only in this controversy, but in corruption, allegations and so on. Uh, what's the feeling, do you think, in Australia amongst the mass of the people on this case? I mean, some of the people, to be honest, have been really embarrassed. They're just like so embarrassed. How can our government do this? Um, it's completely wrong. You've even had um, um, tennis players like Nick Kyrgios um, come out in support of Djokovic saying it's a complete shit show and it, it's an embarrassment. And, um, you know, a lot of people feel that Australia should be stripped of the right to host the Grand Slam. It brings a lot of money into their um, economy, um, one of the prestigious tennis tournaments. And if they can treat their nine-time champion, he's won the last three um, events, um, like this, like detain him illegally, lock him up in a detention hostel, it wasn't even a hotel, um, and then basically take him to court um, by saying he hasn't got a medical exemption, even though he did, he won that case, and then he's on the practice courts, he's in the draw, and then basically just cancel his visa willy-nilly because they just decide that, oh, actually, because the BBC News reported that he's an anti-vaxxer, oh, that might stir up some, you know, Australians rightly so are embarrassed. And um, I think they've come out of it incredibly badly. Um, Djokovic has gained a lot of sympathy um, from some casual tennis fans who just feel that no matter what his stance on the vaccine is, He's a human being and he wasn't treated like that. Um, I just think the way they've treated a champion, he just wanted to play tennis. He's not even gone there for political reasons. A tennis player, you know, they basically used him for political capital because there's an upcoming election and they didn't want to disappoint their voters. Yeah, he's the first uh, vaccination martyr uh, in that regard. Where is he now? Is he on a plane somewhere? 
He's on a plane. I think he's on his way to Dubai. He was deported and he had to leave the country immediately. Um, he's going to go back to Spain, I believe, to be with his family. And um, he said he's not going to make any further statements about the case um, or any comments until the end of the Australian Open because he's obviously aware that he doesn't want any more of the attention to be on him. Basically, the, um, they've kind of like... Um, killed their own tournament off because nobody was looking at the draw. Nobody's talking about the matches. Every single day, everybody was looking at what Djokovic is doing. Uh, last night, we had 80,000 people on a live stream um, with the Australian Federal Court trying to work out if he's going to be able to play. And I was sitting here last night at one o'clock in the morning, laughing hysterically, thinking, I'm just a tennis fan. Why the hell am I watching like this, this court scene? And um, they live streamed it. It was, it was such a joke. And I think it is going to go down as a complete scandal. I think it's still so fresh and there's so much that needs to be sort of um, learned from this. And, you know, but I think the media had a massive part to play. And even though they're now going, oh, no, that's a shame. But anyway, we, let's move on to the tennis. Um, it's a, it's a scandal for tennis, and I feel really sorry for tennis fans. Um, the tennis authorities were very silent, which makes you wonder, why would they not support their number one star? Um, they should have made some strong statements, very weak, willy-nilly statements that came out far too late. And what about his uh, rivals? Did they say anything? You mentioned one tennis player. Forgive me, it's not my sport. Uh, but yeah, what, about the, uh, what about the... The big figures in uh, tennis, the people that he's locked in this 20 victory, uh, Nadal and, and so on. Did they say anything at all? Well, Nadal said um, very famously, and it's almost become like a famous quote, choices have consequences. So nothing, um, he didn't you know, say anything about him being detained, um, stuck in one room, staring at a wall, his phone was taken away, all of this kind of stuff that, you know, was just terrible it was a terrible thing to do to anybody, let alone someone who's gone to support a tennis event. Um, and he's just said that nobody is bigger than uh, the tournament, but there's lots of sponsorship um, inside information about why he might have said that. I can't really go into the ins and outs, but um, Federer has been um, very, very quiet, even though he's supposed to be one of the most popular personalities on the tour. And um, it seems like he's always very well protected by the media and nobody's questioning why Federer hasn't spoken out. Uh, Djokovic would definitely have spoken out. He's very much a revolutionary, a union man. He's setting up um, um, a players um, union basically to represent the players, to increase their um, earnings from the sport. And I think that's one of the reasons that the tennis authorities don't like him. He's standing up against them. Well, advantage you, uh, I think that you've explained the situation to those of us who are not tennis fans uh, very, very clearly indeed. Puneet Bandal, journalist and author, thank you very much indeed for thank joining you, us. Let me read some more uh, of the social media, may I? Uh, Twitter poll answers, the dark horse says the BBC no longer represents quality, impartiality, value for money losing relevance and overpaying all the presenters. And Mary Michael says, yes, for many years now, since John Burt, close friend of Lord Mandelson, was installed by the unlamented Marmaduke Hussey. Yes, uh, kid you not, American viewers and listeners, the head of the BBC 
used to be a man called Marmaduke Hussey. Uh, the BBC has failed to live up to its own or indeed any sort of charter. Furthermore, all the production has been outsourced, so it is a mere husk. And Mark Richards says BBC News with commercial breaks and BBC Parliament should be free to air. The other channels should be subscription. And Jumpin says, I don't believe for one minute that the government have any intention of scrapping it whatsoever. And Rick Adams says there's still a need to be able to prevent external forces buying up and influence all of your broadcast services, particularly at times of stress or war. And Alpine Observer says surely the BBC has beat major issues, but reforming it thoroughly has got to be much better for Britain than yet more mega media US corporations from taking over our news and entertainment. That's a false dichotomy. Uh, why, why is the alternative to a state-mandated, anti-state BBC got to be US media moguls? Are we incapable of doing what most other European countries do, of ensuring that foreign interests do not own uh, the uh, dominant heights of our broadcasting architecture. And Lord Pureblood Rob says they do not represent the feeling of the country. The BBC is blatantly biased towards the minority and leftist propaganda. Not that the minority should, shouldn't be allowed a voice, however, the BBC state they are impartial and unbiased in their reporting, but clearly they are very far from this. Uh, my dear colleague, Shadia Edwards-Dashti, joins me now. She is surveying always the British uh, political scene for RT, and I'm glad to say she joins us. Now, the last time we spoke, you were... Um, you had COVID, but you were feeling well. Uh, are you still feeling well? And have you no longer COVID? I'm COVID free and feeling very well. Absolutely, George. Thank you for your concern as ever. Thank you. Now, look, uh, Boris Johnson has had uh, uh, possibly the worst week of many bad weeks in his uh, premiership. Uh, just summarise how it all looks to you. Well, you say it's one of the worst weeks. It feels very much so for the Prime Minister and his government. It's going from bad to worse. It just feels like the next morning we wake up. What other parties will we be hearing about? What other revelations will be uh, coming out into the forefront of politics today? Obviously, this week has been ridden with party after party, I think, uh, it's more a case of let's talk about the days that there were not parties rather than the days there were parties because there's been so many of them. But at the beginning, it seemed to be quite a farcical thing. Look at the government all boozing, drowning in booze day in, day out. But then it was really... Uh, kind of um, uh, encapsulated by the very image of the Queen herself sat on her own uh, at her husband's funeral. And that's the image that really took the nation because it really encapsulates exactly what people were doing at that time. They were sat on their own, maybe mourning loved ones, maybe just not able to see, like myself, I couldn't go and visit uh, my new nephew, my new niece, uh, two of them during the COVID times. I couldn't go and visit uh, my sister at that time. And many people, everybody in fact, has their own stories. But Boris Johnson and all of his chums, they seem to think, well, 
Who cares? Even an hour after the government announced the rules, they were literally heading out, getting booze and going to the Downing Street uh, parties. And that's the situation that the UK is in at the moment. It's party after party, revelation after revelation. And it really is, of course, as we've heard so many times, it's one rule for them and another for us. There's only three possible explanations, isn't there, Shadia? One is that although they were trying to uh, frighten the horses and the rest of us, uh, with the dangers of doing such things, uh, they didn't really mean it. Uh, they knew it wasn't true and that they were therefore safe to frolic in the uh, corridors of power and in the gardens of power. A second is that they did believe their own propaganda but were so stupid uh, that they were prepared to risk uh, the terrible outcomes that they had warned the rest of us against. And a third possibility is that these people are so drunk on power, so arrogant uh, with power, uh, that they uh, think that they have the right to do as they please and, to, uh, and the rest of us have to do as they say, not do as their betters do. Uh, which of these three, or is it a mixture? of these three options, do you think? It's certainly a mixture of the three, definitely, George, but the one that really stands out to me is option three. It's that arrogance, it's that hypocrisy. The apology we heard from Boris Johnson at PMQs on Wednesday, he said, I'm sorry if I upset you, essentially not. I'm sorry that I upset you. He says he takes responsibility for this. Now, if we look at the context of all of this, we've seen Allegra Stratton take responsibility, Matt Hancock take responsibility. They had to leave. So why is Boris Johnson not at that very podium saying that he will too leave as well? That's a really, really interesting way to look at it. He's saying he takes responsibility, but for what? He was really careful in what he was saying he was doing. It's more of, I'm so sorry to the public that you feel like this, but actually it was a work event. Now, I don't know what work event includes uh, getting absolutely wasted to the point that you're damaging property, children's property in a garden. Yeah, and trestle tables uh, groaning with, uh, with uh, the finest uh, meats and wines. Well, maybe not the finest. They sent out in a suitcase for the booze. Uh, although, to be fair, uh, Boris Johnson was not at that particular party. He was actually recuperating in, uh, in checkers. Uh, it was only a few days after he himself came out of the ICU uh, with uh, COVID, uh, which means that he has picked people to run his office and people for whom he's responsible, certainly for their conduct, uh, who, while the boss was away, knew that there would be no consequences for this uh, drunken carousing. Well, I just want to uh, just take a, a phrase that you mentioned, fine wine. It's really interesting. Back in 2008, Boris Johnson uh, said he alleged that he found 100 bottles of fine wine that was left by his predecessor, Ken Livingstone, when he became the mayor of London. It's really interesting that he was trying to point the finger of blame at fine wine, and now his entire tenure is doused, is drowning, is drunk in these fine wine uh, allegations. I think that's just a really um, 
ironic, let's say, uh, point to make. But Boris Johnson, he allowed all of this to happen. We have to look into, you know, when that email came out, invita invitation, inviting 100 people. Um, that didn't just, it wasn't a party plucked out of thin air. Boris Johnson knew what was going on. And in regards to a lot of these parties, he absolutely knew we have to point the finger at blame directly at Boris Johnson. This is his government. What example is he setting, allowing all of this uh, to go on at a time where people were absolutely locked away and majority of people were really following the rules. And those that weren't following the rules, they were hit with really hefty fines. The other day I was looking on Twitter and uh, a lawyer that was representing a young boy, an 18-year-old lad who invited a few of his friends it turned into be being a bit more than a few friends but certainly less than 40 people like the party at Downing Street and he an 18 year old boy was lumped with a fine of 10,000 pounds wow so that's a huge, huge amount for an 18-year-old kid yes that would be nothing for Boris Johnson but he's the Prime Minister and he needs to be held absolutely accountable it's not just about him saying I'm sorry I take some sort of responsibility. He needs to be held to account. And I don't think Sue Gray is the woman that's going to do it, to be absolutely honest. We're hearing, let's wait for Sue Gray. Let's wait for Sue Gray. Well, where the bloody hell is she? And when she does finally uh, arrive and say what she has to say, it will take a lot more. People really need to hold him to account. MPs can do that. We've only seen six MPs uh, come out to uh, publicly uh, speak against Boris Johnson and all of these this booze culture. But the polls can also hold him to account. We have seen that somewhat, but it's going to take a bit more than this investigation. It will be important what she has to say, but this is the time. This will be the tide of change. Boris Johnson is on thin ice and he's about to sink. Well, I, I would say, uh, disappointing though it may be, uh, that he's probably past the worst. He could still sink. Uh, but I think he's safe until uh, May, uh, the local elections, uh, if they go disastrously badly for the Conservatives. It's quite likely that he'll be removed, or to use a, a British Tory government phrase, highly likely uh, that he will be uh, replaced. Uh, but the fact that you need 54, is it? Uh, letters of no confidence to trigger a no confidence vote. Uh, I think it's a long, long way short of that, Shadia. It is a long way, uh, and we have to remember that Theresa May actually survived a vote of no confidence, so that still doesn't necessarily mean anything in either direction. And of course, if we look back at the last uh, general election, Boris Johnson won with a huge uh, majority, which was sh shocking to uh, a lot of people, of course, but many people are still backing him. I don't know why, but that is certainly uh, the case. So it still is a political labyrinth to sort of oust Boris Johnson, which is why I always look to see the uh, momentum, the grassroots momentum, people on the streets. It will take a lot of uh, people coming out against Boris Johnson. We've got to see an uproar now. It can't just be these enraged conversations uh, at friends' houses. It's got to really manifest in some sort of uh, political momentum to drive the change and drive Boris Johnson out. Because at the end of the day, a prime minister is only prime minister if there's some sort of political impetus to stay there. And 
you know, I, I am a fan of people power. So that is what I would be advocating. And I certainly wouldn't be hoping for the Tory party to bring Boris Johnson down because I wouldn't trust them as far as I can throw them. Quite so. But of course, uh, if he is forced to resign, you'll be replaced by another Tory. And perhaps therein lies the reason why uh, we're a long way short of uh, achieving that. Because uh, if you look at the Conservative front bench, and of course it's the MPs that will be making this decision, but you're right with public opinion in their mind. How could it be otherwise? They all have to face re-election in the end. Um, but when people take a look around at people like Liz Truss and Rishi Sunak and so on, I suppose they ask themselves, uh, are they likely to uh, lead the Conservatives to victory at the next general election? If the answer to that is no, uh, perhaps the instinct then is to cling to nurse for fear of something worse. I have to definitely agree with that. Um, for sure, we are looking at some pretty tragic cases and a lot of uh, people, the polls, they're not that big a fan of the likes of Preeti Patel, Liz Truss, as you say. And so I do think that's why we haven't seen so many MPs uh, publicly coming out to, uh, I mean, uh, Tories coming out to publicly condemn Boris Johnson. And they're sort of floating on the wayside, somewhat defending him, or at least hiding behind the Sue Gray investigation. We are looking, uh, it's likely that we're going to see this investigation. Who is and Sue Gray, Shadia? Who is Sue is she, Gray? A is she a real person? Absolutely. My mother's name is Sue. And I said, are you Sue Gray, mum? Are you Sue Gray? <laughs> Who is Sue Gray? It's a very, very good question. And we'd never heard of her apart from this week, have we, George? And but so the fate of the, of the country is in our hands. <laughs> Absolutely. I think a lot of people think uh, she, she is the answer, but it, it does take a lot more than what she says. Of course, it will be an important moment. I would like to think she would do the right thing, but we have to remember the person that was in her position before her, he had to stand down because he was found to be at a party himself. So <laughs> it's not really looking too good either. Who way. knew there was so much partying going on in Downing Street among such odd people who'd want to be at a party they held? Shadia Edwards Dashti, as always. I'd love to be at a party with you, but that's as far as it goes. Shadia, thank you so much for joining thank, us on the mother much. of all talk shows. Do you welcome the government scrapping the BBC licence fee? Yes, 86%. That's down one. No, 14%. That's up one. And on YouTube, it's yes, 89. On Telegram, it's yes, 91 uh, so uh, the BBC is done for if our audience is anything to go by. Let's hear from Lee in London on the BBC. Lee, welcome to the show. Hi, George. How are you doing? Lovely to hear from you. What would you like to say? George, you know, this thing with the BBC, um, I, I don't even know where to start with this. So I just think that, um, like... I, I feel like the public is being really dumbed down. Um, they're not thinking for themselves. They're just being really media-led. So suddenly the media have this narrative that the BBC is quite left-wing. Um, and I see people repeating this, but actually they're forgetting that 
if anything, BBC was really complicit, in my opinion, with Israel. And just a couple of things I'm going to mention. Um, one of the things was, I remember you yourself when you went on that question time. I think it was in North London. And the question, the, the hostility with which you faced and any supporters that were coming there, because it's supposed to be balanced, uh, you know, a, a balanced position BBC is supposed to take. But actually, your supporters, anybody who came there, and I remember one particular person came there who was a supporter of yours, had to pretend that she was a Tory to get in, just to get in. And she was the only person that was allowed to speak when they let in entire families of Zionists basically, to attack you. And the questions that were asked to you were changed. It wasn't a live show. They could have stopped it and re-recorded it, but they didn't. They let it go on to show the bias that was there. And then I also remember um, the uh, Tony Benn, you know, the DEC, the yeah. BBC were the only the broadcaster that refused yeah. to run it for yeah. Gaza, for Gaza, yeah. exactly. And he went on and he did it live there and then. And they tried to stop him um, at the time. And he, he, he said live on TV, said, you're only saying no because Israel have told you to. And they couldn't deny it. Well, so, apart from, uh, you're right, of course, on both of those counts, uh, but uh, perhaps more particularly, uh, the BBC did everything they could to make sure that Boris Johnson would become uh, the prime minister. The BBC oh, yeah. played a leading role in the destruction of uh, the leader of the opposition at the time, Jeremy Corbyn, Panorama, Newsnight, uh, their news bulletins, relentless, day after day after day after day. So, funnily enough, they're the people, amongst others, usually in, mostly in the Labour Party, but the BBC did as much as anyone else to ensure uh, the election of Boris Johnson as Prime Minister, and now Boris Johnson is uh, about, his government is about to sink them. It's, uh, well, ironic. Uh, it's ironic, isn't it? Yeah, well, they got into bed with the devil, didn't they, all the way through. And you've reminded me of that news night where they had Corbyn's picture with Red Square in Moscow behind him, as if to almost illustrate that he was some sort of Russian spy. Um, he and, was you a know, Russian they spy, a Czech spy, a Polish yeah, spy, an East German <laughs> spy. <laughs> I mean, he's no Barry Gardner. <laughs> yeah, very true, very true. But, I mean, the like, thing is, I just think, you know, I'm really happy. I won. This government is doomed anyway. But if one thing they can do is dismantle BBC, I would think just revenge. All of you at the BBC on the executive board who've, who've over the years pandered to Mark Regev and all of these individuals from Israel, good. I hope that you now get your just deserved so no media organization. Obviously, the flip side of the coin is they'll weaken the BBC so much. And I'm reading, I don't know, and actually it'd be interesting, George, what you think, if there's any merit in this or not, that it will be basically so weak that it will be a, a, a kind of a, a base for Murdoch to come in and say, I'll take this over. Now, Murdoch's about 99 years old. We need, to, uh, we need to get past that. This breaking news story is most perplexing. Uh, the British man who was shot dead after taking four people hostage at a Texas synagogue has been named by the FBI as Malik Faisal Akram. 44 years old, from Blackburn, Lancashire. He was not living in the United States, but had traveled there to Texas as a terrorist to take four Jewish people host hostage in a synagogue, one of them a rabbi. Akram's family say they are devastated by his death. 
but adding they do not condone any of his actions and would like to sincerely apologize wholeheartedly to all the victims involved in the unfortunate incident. The Metropolitan Police Counterterrorism Unit is liaising with US authorities and colleagues from the FBI, which has said there is no indication there were any other individuals involved in the attack. Akram took four people hostage, including a rabbi, inside the Congregation Beth Israel Synagogue in Coleyville, Texas, at around 11 a.m. Uh, local time yesterday. One of the hostages was freed after six hours before an FBI SWAT team entered the building at around 9 p.m. last night, shot the attacker dead and released the other three unharmed. The first part of the siege was captured on a Facebook live stream of the morning Shabbat, which was cut off around 2 p.m. Well, uh, my uh, dear colleague, Rachel Blevins, is herself a Texas Rose uh, and maybe knows something about this story. Rachel, welcome uh, back to the show. Always a pleasure to see you. Can you tell us anything about what happened in that synagogue? Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. You know, George, this seems to be one of those stories where still there are far more questions than answers. Now, you mentioned so far that the suspect is a British national. We just learned that news today, actually. Yesterday, whenever we were looking at this story, they didn't say who it was, didn't say what his motive was. And as of this point, we still don't have a motive. Now, one of the most interesting things about this, as you mentioned, was that a large part of this standoff of this siege was actually live streamed because a number of churches and synagogues now have turned to live streaming on Facebook, on YouTube, as a way to be able to connect with their congregations. Well, in this case, they didn't actually see the siege play out on that Facebook live stream, but they did hear a lot of what happened. And what was strange about it was that even though there were four people that were taken hostage, they continually heard the suspect say things as though he was not going to harm them. And it doesn't appear that he did harm them in any way. Now, a big question, of course, for the FBI was what kind of weapons he had, what he was armed with. And they thought at one point that he may be armed with some sort of bomb materials. We're still waiting for a follow-up on that. They're claiming that they found some sort of firearm near him that they believed was his. We're, of course, still waiting for confirmation on that. But it is notable that the FBI went in after over 10 hours and shot the suspect 
dead. And of course, this is one of those cases where we're still waiting to see. I know the Biden administration has commented on it and they say they're confused. And on that, I agree with them. There is a lot of confusion here about why this man specifically targeted the synagogue. I know the FBI has said that they believe that it was in relation to a Pakistani neuroscientist who was being held in prison for life nearby in Fort Worth. Afia Sadiqi, yeah. Yeah, why he would target the synagogue, I, I sincerely don't know. What sort of place is Colleyville, Texas? So that is a suburb of Dallas. So a pretty, you know, traditional Texas suburb, nothing really special going on there, which I think is why you get kind of that bigger question of why he would have targeted that in the first place. Maybe we'll find out about that. I mean, maybe we'll find out some more details, but it is kind of a lot of questions about why he would come there specifically to that suburb of Dallas and to that synagogue. Now, uh, I'm told that flights to China have been suspended for the Winter Olympics, or for COVID reasons, of course. If you believe that, I've got a bridge here in London <laughs> to sell you. Uh, how is that going down? Yeah, it seems to be just this kind of ramping up of the continued political tensions between the U.S. and China. And it raises a lot of questions, of course, about why the Biden administration has decided that they are going to take the Olympics, something that we all enjoy watching, and turn it into much more of a political situation. And, of course, they are going to say that it's COVID-related. And, you know, it's one of those things where you would think that the U.S. government would be focusing more on what's going on in our own country. But instead, now they have taken that shift and you know it it I think it's one of those things where it really is unfortunate because the repercussions of that then come back to impact all of the athletes that worked for it to be able to get there and I know you've been covering the Novak Djokovic story but it's just yet another thing that comes back around to not leaving the sport alone and instead getting politics and policies involved with it. It's a bit like a tennis match I mean uh, uh, one uh, one day it's China under the hammer. Uh, the next day, it's Russia. I was surprised at this banning of the flights to China because I thought that your government was currently fixated uh, by Russia, uh, claiming that Russia is about to invade Ukraine. Uh, Senator Cruz uh, said in the Senate this week that, that Ukraine was about to be wiped off the map. Uh, a, a flight of fancy that uh, almost defies description. Uh, the, uh, the ramping up of anti-Russian feeling and, it's got to be said, the answers from Moscow are becoming extremely alarming. Uh, Mr. Lavrov, the normally very mild-mannered foreign minister of Russia, said this week that Russia was ready to go, that we'd run out of patience, we're ready to go. He didn't say go where, but uh, he clearly meant something big. Yeah, he clearly did. And first and foremost, when it comes to Ted Cruz and anything he says, unfortunately, he's also from Texas. I do not take credit for any of that. <laughs> However, he was one of those who decided that he was going to 
push for more sanctions on the Nord Stream 2 pipeline. Now, we have to remember that the Trump administration spent its entirety trying to defeat this pipeline. It failed miserably. Then the Biden administration came in and decided that it was going to defeat the pipeline. It has also failed so far, even when it sat there and it threatened direct sanctions against Germany, one of its closest allies. It still didn't get anywhere with that. The pipeline is still built. Now it's just getting to that point of being served. And, you know, you mentioned this ramping up of this continued Russiagate narrative in one way or another. And what's interesting is that that new report that came out that was cited by CNN, of course, they turned to their trustworthy, anonymous U.S. intelligence sources. And every single time we get a report citing those anonymous U.S. intelligence sources, I always take a step back and take another look at it because it always has some sort of motive attached to it. In this case, its motive seems to be that they say that Russia is planning a false flag operation in eastern Ukraine in order to justify invasion. Now, my question is, well, why? Why? What would be the motive behind that? How would Russia benefit from that, given the fact that they have the U.S. and some of its closest allies ready to jump at any kind of attack that would play out like that, ready to go to war, even though we can sit here and talk about how ridiculous and how dangerous that would be for the world all around. But it does not make sense to me when Russia has repeatedly said that where they stand and where they stand in terms of protecting their country, why they would be out there not only planning a false flag attack, but why the U.S. officials would already be there, be ready for it. And it is one of those things where you have to look at the fact of who benefits from this, what the motive would be surrounding it. And it's the U.S. and its NATO allies who have been the ones ramping up tensions in that region. And of course, when it comes to that specific CNN report, it was no shock that it was written by the same quote unquote reporter who was the one pushing the Russiagate narrative and the Steele dossier and has literally been making her career out of pushing those false narratives for going on nearly six years now. Uh, the good news is if it was on CNN, nobody would have seen it uh, because <laughs> CNN has lost 90 percent, 90, 90% of its audience in the last year. Uh, I can't say uh, that makes me uh, sad at all. I'll tell you what I think is going to happen, Rachel. I think all of this talk is to uh, provide a cover for the precise opposite of a Russian invasion of Ukraine. There's going to be a Ukrainian invasion of those parts of eastern Ukraine that since the coup in Kiev in 2014 have lain out with the authority of the central government. I believe they are the ones who are going to invade a territory which the Minsk agreement recognizes now needs to be treated as autonomous parts of Ukraine. Uh, and all this talk of false flags and the rest is a cover for that. Absolutely. I would say you're spot on right there. And I think it's one of those cases where all roads lead back to Joe Biden. He was an important member of the Obama administration back in 2014. Now he's back in office today. And it is notable how all of a sudden the U.S. has started ramping up its sights specifically on Ukraine and specifically trying to increase those tensions with Russia along the way. And that's exactly the way that they do it. They lead out with some sort of propaganda campaign. They make sure 
sure that those mainstream outlets like CNN, like Fox News, that they are all on board with it, and then they take action, and then you have CNN sitting right there saying, see, we told you that it's a, it was a false flag. We told you that our anonymous sources were correct, and they never take the time to, any, to issue any actual corrections or to look at the actual facts of the story because they want to keep those so-called anonymous sources from the U.S. intelligence community. I wonder if Joe Biden even knows it's all going on uh, on his uh, watch. <laughs> Lastly, and I'm grateful for your time as always, Rachel, is the Djokovic story playing in the United States at all? If so, how is it playing? It is playing out right now, and I think it's really stirring up a lot of that frustration that we've seen, not only on the U.S. stage, but also on the world stage. You know, it's interesting because when you get on Twitter on any given day, you can see these horrible police brutality videos of people being targeted for breaking lockdowns in Australia. I mean, we've seen videos of different prison camps, detainment camps in Australia. And so I think it brings us back around to kind of where we are with the COVID-19 vaccine right now. Now, I don't quite understand why Australia let him into the country and then made such a big deal about it afterwards. It feels as though they are making him into sort of the spectacle of the unvaccinated. But I think it's also important to remember that as the CDC has said here in the U.S., these vaccines don't stop transmission. So to act as though he is some kind of dangerous figure as they are trying to make him out to, and as a number of people support that theory, I think here in the U.S. we're looking at it and realizing that this is the danger of that authoritarian, tyrannical power that a lot of governments want to have and that the U.S. government specifically wants to have when it comes to dealing with this situation. And now we are seeing the product of that with this athlete. Rachel Blevins, thank you for joining us on the mother of all talk shows. Always a pleasure to see you. Uh, in 2013, Lance Armstrong admitted doping in just how many Tour de France that he won? A, two, B, five, C, seven. Answer after the break. Radio Sputnik. Tom says after independence, we could choose the government we want. Tom. Could you not have called me and argued that nonsense? Couldn't you? What's wrong with you, man? You've had the vaccine. Go ahead. I went, when I came out, I went into a boxer's stance and started doing a jig. And an old fella said, Hey, have you just had that vaccine? I said, Aye. And he said to his wife, Come on, love, you better get me one of them. He said, uh, Make uh, me uh. dance. So you're full of life. <laughs> and Ben says, could Scotland actually do better autonomously? Like I want California to secede. But I think we'd thrive if not burdened by the rest of the US. How very revealing of you, Ben. How utterly revealing of you. And Philip says, how any Labour or Tory supporter has the nerve to say the SNP are corrupt is beyond me. Why do you people not have the guts to call up instead of cowering behind one single name? on social media. There's a lot of people in Bradford who won't be taking this uh, uh, antivirus due to religious grounds. Simon, what do you mean by religious grounds? Religious grounds, I mean, many Muslims, for example, have 
issues with regards to this uh, uh, vaccine, certain well, tell things. Me, tell me what issues. What issues? Well, for example, pork. What does pork have to do with this vaccine? You're, you're, um, you're, you're kind of again. You're, you're clouding the issue here. There's the religious. I'm not clouding uh, the issue. You said pork. You said pork. Simon, Simon, are you, are you yourself a Muslim? It doesn't matter whether it I am does, or not. It does because you are is, purporting. Is, no, it does. It's just it does. For to ask that. Be it's quiet for a moment, for, please. No, I won't. It's just well, you will because I'll turn your them. volume down. This is dangerous, reckless. Ignorant and potentially fatal nonsense. Get out of my sight and don't come back. Tough questions are the most powerful weapon we have. As long as you have questions, we'll keep asking. Radio Sputnik, telling the untold. The cheat Lance Armstrong, in fact, admitted being doped in seven Tours de France that he won. Who'd have thunk it? Now, here are the phone numbers. Uh, if you're calling from the United Kingdom, remember, it's completely free to call the show. And it's 08081. 965522. If you're in the United States or Canada, for that matter, it's also toll free, so it will cost you nothing at all. And the number is plus one eight four four nine four four double three double four. That's plus one eight four four nine four four double three double four. And you can email the show anytime on air at moats.tv. I've got so much social media. I hope I get uh, time to read it, but let's take first Michael in Minneapolis. Michael, welcome to the show. Happy New Year, George. It's been and a while, to you, long to time no here. What would you like to say? Well, I want to talk about your uh, discussion of the Djokovic thing with the, with the interview that you did earlier. Yeah. And I thought that, the, yeah, well, the thing is, he blatantly lost on his visa application. He said he had not traveled anywhere in the 14 days before he went to Australia, and he had been to both Serbia and Spain, which has come out subsequently. So you can't, if, if I tried to go to England and I lied on the visa application and they find out I lied, then they might not let me into the country and they would have every right to do so because you can't lie on a visa application. So I think that was pretty outrageous. And then I said my other point was to what Rachel said about uh, Levens, about how it's being covered. I mean, she might be talking about the main, like the corporate, like the, the not sports media, but the sports media is crushing Djokovic. I mean, they are disgusted with him. Everyone is criticizing him. On ESPN, they are, you know, the biggest sports network um, in the world. I mean, they have, they're crushing him every day and saying that he's, you know, that he's way out of line. So, and why do you think, think that is, Michael? Um, they never liked him. Long before this, what is it they've got against them, do you think? Uh, you know, I'll be honest, uh, George, I'm more of an American football fan than I am a tennis fan, so I'm not sure exactly what they have against Djokovic. I know he's maybe not, the, he's a little bit prickly with the media at times, but I, I, don't, I, don't, I can't speak to that. But I will say I think that what he's getting hammered at, I think the, the point they're hitting over and over is he lied on his visa application. And I think that's a legitimate point. Um, 
Well, I don't so know that, that I don't know I'm... that he did uh, lie on his uh, visa application. I know that when I it's get a visa, reported. when I get a visa to enter your country, I have to testify that I have not been involved in any moral turpitude. I've always loved that phrase. Michael, thanks uh, very <laughs> much for that call. Eve is in Idaho. Let's hear from Eve. Go ahead, Eve. Hello, thank you for having me on your show. Welcome. Uh, I, have, I have three comments on Ukraine. Yeah. Which I've which not heard very, which I've never heard. But my first comment is the so-called Minsk agreement. Well, the Minsk agreement uh, is, is not accepted by Ukraine and it's not accepted by the Donbass. The Donbass people lost 12,000 people and they don't want to be part of Ukraine at all. Autonomy, not autonomy. So that's fact number one. So I think this Minsk agreement will never be applied. My second comment is about what is NATO pressure? Well, the NATO pressure, in my opinion, is not the SWIFT, uh, disconnect from the SWIFT, they know, or iPhone, or no. The big way of pressure is, I believe, to admit Sweden or Finland or both in NATO. And that's, I think that's what they have up their sleeves. And my third point of view is that, well, what about the Russian? Well, the Russian have a big water problem in Crimea. And I think they may, and this is what the racial your guest was referring to, you know, the Americans say, oh, they have something, a false flag and so on, and with people who blow up things and so on. Well, one possibility is that the Russians actually blow up the little dam that the Ukrainians made to prevent the water to flow to Crimea from the northwest, you see. So that, those were my three points. They're very powerful ones. I'm grateful to you for them. Crow Hawk says, for many years, and possibly still today, MI5 had an office at the BBC headquarters where they politically vetted prospective BBC employees. Yes, like Guy Burgess. Uh, Jimmy Savile and Rolf Harris obviously passed MI5's vetting procedure. And Renv, Renv says, no wonder Harry wants to distance himself from the rest of the freaks. You wouldn't want your creepy uncle babysitting your kids. And Goody Two-Shoes says, fittest man on the planet, Novak now cancelled. And Archibald Windsor, I wonder if he's part of the family, uh, says if Starmer gets in, we'll be in Ukraine fighting our real allies, Russian partners who helped to destroy fascism. And Chika Boom Boom, says Australia is losing the battle against the virus. They don't need no anti-vax in their country. And Jane Wilcox says, my opinion of the Australian government has gone down even more. I feel sorry for the people of Australia. And uh, Gubarwala says, China will bury Australia by throttling its economy. The Aussie prime minister is a thug. Gavin Gordon says, tennis is for posh kids, not us council kids. Screw them. I, was, uh, I turned up at the tennis once, dressed like Alf Tupper, the tough of the track. 
I can still feel the weathering stares of those in whites as this council house, tough of the tracks, so calmly passed and volleyed them all. Now look, now our next guest is no John McEnroe, uh, but he is Professor Sir John Curtis, the Prince of Cephologists from Strathclyde University in my old manor in Glasgow. Uh, Sir John, thank you very much indeed for uh, joining us. On the face of it, uh, to be 13 points behind a block of wood called Sir Keir Starmer it must be the crowning achievement of Boris Johnson's political career. How did it come to this? Essentially, George, because since the beginning of November, the question of Boris Johnson's probity and more recently his honesty has become the dominant political question of the day. And a majority of the electorate, at least, including many a person who voted Conservative in 2019, have now come to have doubts about his probity and are certainly inclined to the view that he's not always been telling the truth about the various parties stroke gatherings that are alleged to have taken place during the course of lockdown. This story really begins with the attempt to try and avoid the suspension of Owen Patterson, the former Conservative MP for North Shropshire, who'd been upbraided by the Standards Committee uh, for lobbying ministers on behalf of companies that he was being paid for, paid to as a consultant, and that's against the rules of the House of Commons. He tried to avoid him being suspended. Um, there was an almighty row. 24 hours later, he did an about turn, uh, but that began to raise questions about what Boris, jo Boris Johnson's judgment and about his ethics. And then, of course, we had that now infamous video released on the 7th of December, which showed Allegra Stratton, his former uh, uh, spokesperson, struggling in a mock press conference to defend uh, uh, a gathering that supposedly took place in December 2020, uh, when uh, England was under fairly substantial lockdown. Um, and that instigated what we might now call Partygate 1.0, um, by the end of which, by Christmas, support for the Conservatives was down to about 32 points, whereas before the Owen Partisan affair, they'd be back up at 40, and Labour were amongst those who profited. Well, it all went quiet over the Christmas season, inevitably, and indeed Conservative fortunes revived a little bit. But then earlier last week, ITV, and it's ITV on both occasions who've made the running, released an email uh, in which there was an invitation to attend a party uh, in 10 Downing Street in May 2020, uh, it was rumoured that Boris Johnson had attended this. Indeed, then the Prime Minister was forced to admit that he had done on Wednesday. And that just basically has put the Conservatives back in even greater trouble electorally than they were at the end of Christmas. They're now running on average about 30% in the polls. And to top it all, following on from the email and the admission 
uh, that there was a party in May 2020. There was what for, you know, the conservative base, for loyal conservative voters, is perhaps the worst um, of all of the various incidents that have come to light, which was the discovery that two parties were held at 10 Bounding Street, not with the Prime Minister present, but in his office, two uh, parties being held on the eve when the Queen uh, was uh, attending the funeral of the, her husband, the Duke of Edinburgh, and was having to socially isolate and therefore was on her own. And that, in a sense, I think for many a Conservative, has probably been the last straw. Now, you're a knight of the realm, so I shan't ask you to uh, follow me down this road, but hear me out. I have always known uh, that uh, Boris Johnson was a man with no probity. I've always known that he was a man that was thoroughly dishonest. I'll go further. Every journalist and broadcaster in the country already knew that. So what is new that has tipped this balance? Is it just last straw kind of thing? No, I mean, it's, I mean I'll come back to your earlier remarks in a moment, George. Um, the reason why it's now become an issue for the wider electorate is that whereas previously his tendency, well, and the way I would put it is that he, uh, Boris is somebody who focuses on trying to get done what he wants to have done and is willing to be rather light in his adherence to rules and regulations and the law along the way. I mean, the most famous example of this was his uh, prorogation of parliament in September 2019. The UK Supreme Court said this was illegal but that was fine for at least half the electorate because that was done in pursuit of Brexit. And the other incidents that, that, that we can raise, I mean, again, you know, for example, you know, the so-called VIP lane for people who were uh, willing to um, provide the government with PPE during the pandemic. And, you know, if you knew a Tory MP, you got on this uh, fast list for consideration. Now, that's been ruled illegal by the courts. But again, many people would say that the end justified the means because we, all of us certainly wanted doctors and nurses to have the adequate PPE. Um, the trouble with the last couple of months is that there isn't a body of voters out there who thinks that life should be made easy for MPs with respect to their second jobs. Indeed, many voters think they shouldn't have them, or at least no more than the odd doctor also filling in occasionally on an NHS ward. And certainly, as we knew from the Dominic Cummings affair, there is nobody out there who thinks that it's fine for people who are responsible for making the rules over COVID. Very draconian rules at one stage that stopped people from attending relatives' funerals, from uh, holding the hand of a relative that was dying, that dying to be able to visit uh, uh, loved ones who with dementia in their care home. You know, people have felt, have made really painful sacrifices only then apparently to discover that 10 Downing Street carried on in a manner that seemingly seemed to think that the rules were never ever there. And what therefore has happened, George, and I now come back to your earlier remarks. Yes, I'm perfectly well aware that um, a lot of people have felt that in the past that the relationship between Boris Johnson and the truth seemed to be sometimes a rather loose one. But one of the things that is a fascinating set of um, Twitter um, uh, comments from James Johnson, Theresa May's uh, uh, pollster, who's uh, been holding focus groups uh, amongst uh, uh, voters, including amongst conservative voters. 
And he's released a whole string of quotes uh, on Twitter this evening in which basically what a lot of the voters were saying, well, look, we thought Boris Johnson was different. Um, you know, he, he seemed to speak you know, our language and he was getting Brexit done. So he was somebody who had got across to them and proved attractive to them. But now those qualities that they once thought were attractive, they're now saying, hang on, he's a bit of a buffoon. He's a bit of a joke. We can't trust him. So, you know, it does look as though, as certainly now this is only a few people, it's, you know, it's qualitative research, but certainly, you know, it's in tune with the, the quantitative polling data that perhaps indeed now there's a wider body of people who perhaps share the doubts that you've certainly expressed and certainly Boris Johnson's critics have expressed in the past. And if that is the case, then the problem facing the prime minister and the problem facing his party is whether or not, if indeed a significant section of the, the electorate, including many people who voted in 2019 for the Conservatives, have come to that conclusion, whether or not that is a change of impression that's capable of being reversed. He's like a figure out of Tom Brown's school days. He's, uh, he's uh, a, a shark. He's uh, a mountbank. Uh, he fathers children in other people's marriages. He's a serial adulterer. He is a man that was dismissed by a national newspaper for dishonestly uh, inventing quotations. Uh, he's famously uh, loose, not just with morals, but with the truth. But he's a vote winner, Sir John. At least he was. for the he Tories, for the Tories he's the a vote winner. Well, he was, undoubtedly. And look, he's a very highly charismatic figure. Um, uh, he's a very effective campaigner, uh, a brilliant speaker, so long as he doesn't lose his notes. Um, and um, uh, for those who believed in Brexit, um, you know, have, having been the person who probably was, together with Nigel Farage, responsible for ensuring that the UK voted to leave the European Union, something with which I, I know you have a certain amount of sympathy, um, then you know, the, the, the truth is for that section of the British public, they really very much took to him. And, you know, he didn't seem like your standard uh, uh, Tory top, although, of course, many people will say that given he did Eton in Oxford, he was. But anyway, um, that's what he managed uh, uh, to achieve. Um, the point is that now, for, the very, for that very same group of people, however, they've now, as it were, many of them come to a very different conclusion because they've now seen him fail to follow the rules and to do things differently over something which makes them at least deeply upset, and thus the, the change of tone. Now, you're, you're asking about Sakir. Now, um, I mean, I, certainly, it's certainly true that, you know, the reason why the, Conser the Labour Party are ahead in the polls is primarily because the Conservatives have uh, scored these own goals, and more accurately, Boris Johnson has. And indeed, at least until the last few days, Labour's standing in the poll was no higher than it was 12 months ago. All we were looking at is the party recovering from a pretty dismal year in 2021. That said, I have to say to you, George, Labour are now running at 41. It's no great shakes, but it is their highest standing at any point in this parliament, their highest standing under Sir Keir. And I think I would say, and maybe you might even be willing to concede, I think one of the things that I've certainly noticed in recent weeks is that Sir Keir perhaps has begun a little bit to learn how to be a politician 
and it's become a little bit less of the lawyer. I mean, for a long time over Prime Minister's questions, he was spending his time trying to fillet the Prime Minister as though he was a prosecuting lawyer, which we all know he's very good at. Now, it's very effective, but it doesn't really come up with a broad message that comes out well in the six o'clock news, the 10 o'clock news. More recently, he has started to make much more rhetorical comments in Prime Minister's questions, making a political point. Um, and I think that certainly has been more effective. And I think perhaps that's begun, and it's only with a very capital B, begun perhaps to persuade the, a few more people in the public that maybe he might be an effective prime minister. Uh, though the truth is, even now, uh, people are basically for every person who thinks, yeah, maybe he'd be OK. There's another one who still has their doubts. The public is still largely very much indifferent to him. Though, of course, I know that some people inside the Labour Party are not indifferent towards him. But shall we say the animus that some people inside the Labour Party feel towards Sakir is largely lacking amongst the public. They may not think he's up to very much, but few people dislike him or feel very strongly in favour of him in the way that was certainly true on both sides of the scale so far as Jeremy Corbyn was concerned. Well, I suppose then because of the time, uh, it'll have to be my final question. But the, the big question, therefore, is can Boris Johnson come back from this? And if not, what do the Tories do next? Well, it, it's certainly very, very difficult. I mean, previous prime ministers have been in trouble, have been in trouble essentially because of arguments about policy. The, 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 all of this has essentially happened because of arguments about Boris Johnson's behaviour. So it's very, very much about his personality. And the question the Conservative Party have to ask themselves is, is however effective a vote when he was in the past, is he now damaged goods and therefore needs to be returned to sender? That's the question they have to, to ask themselves. If they do come to that conclusion, then the truth is I think they will find themselves having to get rid of him. Uh, and then we will be in a new political ballgame. We, we will have somebody, either Rishi Sunak or Liz Truss, who certainly I think will not be as willing to be as interventionist as Boris Johnson was. He isn't a traditional Tory, at least in certain respects, he's something of a big spender. And that, I think, might actually pre present the Labour Party with a rather easier target to attack. Labour Party would like politics to go back to an argument between right and left. Quite difficult to do that when your uh, uh, presumably right-wing opponents are led by a prime minister whose instincts are rather heavily on the interventionist side. Very, very fascinating situation, and no one better to explain it than your good self. Professor Sir John Curtis, thanks for joining us on the mother of all talk shows. Uh, one way back, it seems to me, is to go for the BBC, and that's what the Tories did today. They announced that this would be the last settlement, uh, and the licence fee would come to an end at the end of this settlement. The poll has, I think, closed, and here's the result. Do you welcome the government scrapping the licence fee? Yes, 86%, no, 14%. On YouTube, it was 89%, yes, 11%, no. On Telegram, it was 91%, yes, and only 9%, no. I think 3,300 of you voted. I'm grateful for all of those votes. However you voted, 
This is a story that's going to run and run. The very highly paid BBC factotums paid by you and paid by me are already out on the airwaves telling us how wonderful Radio 6 Live is and how absolutely bereft we would be if only we didn't have the one show to watch in the evening. If you believe that, as I always say, I've got a bridge here in London I can sell you. Now, a man who is one of the most, I would say, forensic of my former parliamentary colleagues is the Right Honourable Norman Baker. Not only did he write the best book on the strange death of Dr David Kelly, and he was, of course, uh, an associate producer of my film, on the subject, but his book on the royal family is simply devastating. I'm amazed that not everyone is talking about it. I'm amazed that you haven't read it yet, if you have not, because when I see the remainders of the supporters of monarchy, I always say to them, you obviously haven't read Norman Baker's book. I'm glad to say that more and more people are buying it. And that's why the Right Honourable Norman Baker is always a welcome guest on this show, although he squeezes us in between his own radio show and whatever else he has to do later. So I'll be quick, Norman. It's been one hell of a week for Prince Andrew and therefore for his poor old mother. Yes, you have to feel sorry for the Queen, even if you're a Republican, because the way she's been landed in it by Prince Andrew, who is a, a pompous, uh, arrogant boor, uh, is, is very unfair on her. And add to that, of course, the uh, revelation about the Daly Street parties on the night when she, before she was sitting alone in, uh, in for uh, Prince Philip's funeral. So she's having a rough time. But Prince Andrew is, uh, no one's got any sympathy for Prince Andrew. Uh, he's been very rude to people over the years. He's got no grace whatsoever. He shouts at people, uh, including his own staff, of course. Um, he's got uh, a huge number of questions to answer about the, uh, the Jeffrey Epstein business, where he said he would cooperate with the FBI, and all he's done is throw obstacles in the way and not cooperate with them. And all that strategy has proved to be fruitless. He's now um, running out of options. And on top of that, as you know, George, we discussed it before, uh, he's very vulnerable, in my view, on a whole lot of dodgy financial dealings, which I think may yet come out in more detail. Well, especially as Kazakhstan is... Uh shaking and uh, a lot of uh, Prince Andrew's dealings have been unaccountably you may say uh, with the former communist leaders of uh, Kazakhstan. Uh, what did Prince Andrew first find attractive about the Central Asian Republic of Kazakhstan? I think he finds attractive the fact that they are autocracies, they don't believe in democracy and they believe in brown envelopes. And I think that's the reason why Andrew finds him attractive. We know, for example, he was up for a commission of 3.85 million just for sending a couple of emails in Kazakhstan. Uh, that uh, turned out to be uh, a, a project that failed because the workers ended up protesting and were all shot by the police and the investors took fright. We also know that the son-in-law of the pre previous president uh, spent 15 million pounds on uh, Prince Andrew's rather ghastly Tesco-style house, which he received from his mother uh, for a wedding present. It'd been on the market for £12 million for several years, going nowhere, uh, through samples the agents. Suddenly, £15 million was found 
by the son-in-law all through um, Dance the Seven Veils, all these shadow companies. Uh, and then, of course, what did he do with the, with the house? He did nothing. He knocked he it down, didn't he? He knocked it down. So, you know, <laughs> why would someone pay £15 million for a house he intended to knock down, £3 million over the asking price, and why would he hide their purchase of it? Yes, you may well ask. <laughs> you may well ask, indeed. But it's not just Andrew, is it? Uh, although we will have to come back to him if you've got the time. But uh, Harry and Meghan are kicking over the traces now. Well, I mean, obviously, they, they, they've departed from the royal family and they've sacked themselves, if you like. And, uh, you know, good luck to them. I think they should be free to remove themselves from the royal family if they want to. And actually, what Harry has said in the last couple of days, I've got some sympathy with. I don't think the taxpayer should be providing security for him or indeed for Prince Andrew. But if he wants to pay for it, like a football club will pay for it, for police to be at a football club, then why not? That seems perfectly reasonable to me. And uh, what about the, uh, the situation in the palace itself? Uh, I keep getting people writing to me saying that the Queen is poorly. She is, of course, almost 96. What do you hear on the vine? Is she going to be well enough to properly preside over her platinum uh, anniversary? Well, I think she probably will make an effort, and, and she's reasonably fit, I think. But the fact is she's old and she's a bit tired. I mean, who wouldn't be at 95? And I think she'd have liked to have handed over a lot more responsibility to Prince Charles and Prince William by now, but she's not been able to because of the um, catastrophe within the royal family which has been going on. And the fact is, George, that you know, people, most people have got a lot of respect for the Queen. They don't have the same respect for Prince Charles or indeed for the wider royal family. Um, we need to modernise it. Charles says that, but as you know from my book, 44 people on the front cover there, 44 people on Buckingham Palace balcony. Who are they all? What are they doing? Why are we paying for them all? And there's got to be a lot of changes made. And Charles has got, I think, a limited window to make these changes. If he doesn't, then I think the tolerance that people have showed towards the Queen, they've kept her, their lip buttoned in order not to upset the Queen. You know, that doesn't apply when she's gone. Well, I'm going to be campaigning for a referendum. I wish the Queen long life. She's already had a long life, but longer life. Uh, but uh, upon her demise, uh, which comes to all of us, if I'm still here, I'll be campaigning for a referendum on whether or not Britain should dispense with all of this tomfoolery. Mm. Well, you and, I can, you and I can be on the, uh, on the, on the uh, march together, George. Excellent. I'm glad to hear that. I thought you might be, being a Liberal Democrat, just a bit on the reforming side. You might just want a slimmed-down bicycling uh, monarchy. But if you're ready to uh, come with me on the, on the march, that would be great. My last point is, I was amazed to discover that Prince Andrew is a member of the Order of the Garter, uh, yeah. which turns out to be as rum a collection as you could get, it certainly will be, if Tony Blair ever gets to join it. How can he, if he's been stripped of his HRH, which I understand he has been, how can he continue to be a Knight of the Garter? Well, he's not stripped of his HRH. This is a mis misleading statement from the palace. He's, he's been told he can't use it for public purposes, but he kept it. And that's significant because that means he can continue to claim money for security and for travel. That's the doorway to getting access to those two things. Princess Diana was stripped of HRH status. He hasn't been. 
Ah, well, I was misinformed uh, in that case. But my point is still there, isn't it? Um, if, the knight, if the knighthood of the garter is supposed to be the creme de la creme, the highest echelon, uh, how come Andrew's still sitting in it? Well, look, I mean, George, you'll know as well as I do, I mean, that, that, that this is not based on merit. This is not based on achievement. These aren't the brightest people in the world. These are the establishment figures who are giving him something back for, for being establishment figures. It's been used as a kind of sinecure, as a way of handing out dolly mixtures ever since Richard III of it was started it way back seven centuries ago. That's how it is. It's just, it's just a way of keeping people sweet. You know, I mean, there's no, there's no, just, there's no link between how good people are and uh, what they belong to, not in our honour system. The whole thing is reforming. You know, you can be, on a, you can be outside your school for 60 years in all weathers, getting kids across the road, if you're lucky, you get an MBE. If you're a Prince Andrew, you, get, you become a, a vice-admiral because you're 55, you become an admiral at 60 because it comes up with the rations. <laughs> How's your book doing? I like to think that the royal family are doing their best to build your sales, I must say. Well, they are, they are doing their best, quite rightly. And uh, it's now in America. And it's selling quite well over there. So that's good. Um, and uh, I'm hoping very much that it will uh, pick up in Australia where I've been doing some documentary work on the royals. So it needs to pick up because this is not just about my book. This is about people understanding how our democracy works or doesn't work. Right, Honourable Norman Baker, the best of luck with it. Thanks for joining us on the mother of all talk shows. Erin is in Washington State in the United States. Wants to talk about the BBC. Erin, go ahead. Hi, George. Hi. I'm calling to say that I find BBC licensing fee to be quite a bargain, considering that it allows UK citizens to access some of the highest quality journalism. Yeah, but it's a bargain and we're forced I to make, Erin. Don't you see the point? I see the point, but I think the BBC has some sense of covering the shortcomings of its country's government. It covers Prince Andrew's lawsuit. It covers Boris Johnson's parties. You love talking about military campaigns of the West, George, but it seems like Mr. Putin has muzzled you when it comes to Russia's aggression. <laughs> Do you see a muzzle? You, 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 make, you make fun of the idea of Russian troops being on Ukraine's border right now. You Russian troops can be anywhere they like inside Russia's border. What about outside Russia's borders? In Where Ukraine are they outside Russia's border, Aaron? Where? They're not in Crimea. They're not in... Crimea not is in part Georgia. of Russia. They're in Syria at the uh, express invitation of the legitimate, recognized government of Syria. Where else are they, Aaron? They're in Georgia. They're in Moldova. They're not You're in Georgia. Now, now, Georgia. now it's all becoming clear. You want to talk about the BBC's integrity, yet you have no integrity yourself. There are no Russian forces in Georgia. There are no Russian forces in the Ukraine. The only place where there are Russian forces are where they are legally invited to be. It's you who has no integrity, and it is telling indeed that it's you that's the only person to phone up in defense of the BBC. Now, on the earlier subject that you raised, Putin doesn't muzzle me. I have never, in a decade and more, ever, ever, 
ever, triple ever, been asked by RT to say something or not to say something. That's not something that any BBC employee would ever be able to tell you. Far from being muzzled, I am entirely free to express my honestly held views. You may not like those views, but if you had any integrity, you'd surely accept that at least I genuinely believe them. There's a legend on the line. It's Norma in Bristol. Go ahead, Norma. Hello, George. I'm um, not happy tonight. Why? Um, well, the lady, I think her name is Pernitanda Bandel. Yes, She was yes. on about Djokovic. Now, yeah. I, as you know... She was I'm a big great... supporter, yeah. You well, like I'm tennis, a... don't you? Oh, I'm a great tennis fan. And with the... I think that they handled it, the government, terribly badly. But Djokovic supposedly had COVID a few months ago. The next day he opened a big celebration with lots of children when he should have been isolating. If he had this COVID, he may have been very ill and wish he'd been vaccinated, but... He looks secondly, pretty healthy to me, Norma. A lot healthier yeah, know, than some of the people uh, threatening him or uh, warning him that he's a health risk. But, I mean, the fact is, I don't think... You think you should isolate the first day you've had COVID and not open a great load of children that he was going to be with, which he did... And he lied on his visa. He said he hadn't travelled when since, and he travelled to Spain. I mean, he's a brilliant player, George, but to my mind, if he'd have um, wanted to have sort of won this first 21st Grand Slam, no fuss. If I, he'd have had his vaccination in the beginning. But he's um, entitled not to be vaccinated if he doesn't want to be, Norma, surely. But the, ru the rules of Australia are very, very strict. And everybody that will be watching will have to have had the vaccination. He's no different to anybody else, you know? Well, he, he was given a visa. He was, and then it, he shouldn't have been. He sh that should have been looked at properly in the beginning. And uh, he was, and they made a right fuss, and he took hours. He should have been playing in about three hours' time, but they did handle it very badly. But there are other players. There's Federer, there's Nadal. Um, they are great players, and I'm really looking Yeah, but they're not up it. against the champion. That's the point now. Oh, they are. They've all got 20th Grand Slam. Yeah, but the Australian champion is Djokovic. Only in Australia. In United States... But that's States, where they're was... playing without him. Yeah, but in the United States, he was disqualified because he threw a ball back, hit the lanesman in the neck, and was disqualified. So Medvedev won there. Well, um, it's a pleasure to disagree with you for <laughs> once, Norma. Uh, I've got the, the uh, gig coming up in Liverpool uh, on the 28th, I think, of, uh, of March. Yeah, Monday, the 28th of March, in the Hope Street Theatre. Uh, there's, I don't know, three dozen tickets left, maybe. Uh, you can get them from ticketquarter.co.uk. Don't leave it too late, because... They'll be sold out this week, even though it's the 28th of March. I'm going to confer the status of legend on Kenny in Acton. That'll be two legends in a row. We've had a Knight of the Realm. We've had a, we've had a Right Honourable. And we've had two legends in a row. First Norma, now Kenny in Acton. Go ahead, Kenny.
Good evening, George. I'd just like to say I'm very privileged and honoured to... You're welcome to the ranks. And, it's and much better than the Knights of the Garter. Legends of Moats is a much greater <laughs> honour than being a Knight of the Garter, Kenny. Absolutely. I signed the petition to have that Tony Blair guy... Uh, Good. Stopped. Having the knighthood stopped. You know, I don't, I don't think that's right. Good. Yeah, so I've written out a monologue here. Oh, you're to be quick then. We've only got two why, minutes. Why I'm not a socialist. It's not a long one. But here we go. Marx and Engels repeatedly admitted in the Communist Manifesto that there has never been a system of production in the history of the world that was as effective at producing commodities in excess than capitalism. So the logical assumption would be, therefore, that we're already on a system that's supposed to produce the proper level of material productivity and lift more and millions and millions of people out of poverty, which it has done since the Industrial Revolution. Nobody has ever been able to set up an economic system without... You are listening to the Mother of All Talk Shows podcast with George Galloway. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program.